Good morning, everyone. It's my absolute privilege to be here this morning and to share with you. I feel like I almost have to say this every time I'm here. It's, the privilege is not to stand behind a pulpit and have a microphone. We are so privileged to be part of this community, this family, this group of believers who are on a, a passionate pursuit of knowing our God. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a son, I'm a son of the house, not because I've been here for a long time, but because I've captured a heartbeat of who our God is, which has changed me. And here we're not just casual attendees. We're a family. We're, we're people who are here for a purpose, which is to know him. So it's a real privilege to, to be here and to share. Does anyone know what the series is that we're looking at this month? No, no, no one's been here for the last three weeks and has any idea of what we've been looking at? Divine nature. Oh, that's a dead giveaway when it's put on the screen. The divine nature of Abba, saved by the bell. That's all I can say. The divine nature of Abba, or the divine nature of our Father. And we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians 13, often pretty much only known for being shared of in weddings, really. But actually, this, this passage of Scripture, this topic of love, really isn't just about a wedding day. It's about a power and a life that's to live within us. And as followers of God, we're not just to know about love, we're to become love. And this really is the message of the gospel, the people of God becoming like God. This is what discipleship is. When Jesus says, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He doesn't say, come follow me, come follow me and let's go and get fishing. He says, come follow me, and I will make you. Someone who doesn't fish for themselves, for their own lives, for their own pleasure, for their own comfort, but someone who is passionately pursuing what it is that I love and what it is that I live for my people. So this week we're going to be looking at the next installment of First Corinthians 13. So we've looked at love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, Love does not act unbecomingly. Does anyone know what the next one is? A gentle murmur. The next one is love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own. So I might start by just reading out this first little bit of First Corinthians. The title is The Excellence of Love. What a title. And it says this, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love. I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give, give all of my possessions to feed the poor and surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. And is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, 
does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So today, love does not seek its own. A little bit of an interesting sentence. When I, when I read that sentence, it's almost like it doesn't make sense. It's almost like you've got half a sentence. Love does not seek its own. Its own what? Its own what? Love, should it, I mean, is there some sort of mistake in the Bible? Love does not seek it, should it be love does not seek its own possessions? That would make more sense. What about love does not seek its own agenda? Maybe. Love does not seek its own reputation. Now, all of these things are true, and actually all of these things are tied up in a love that doesn't seek its own. But actually, at its deepest core, a love that does not seek its own is not actually about outward and external things. Now, hmm. now when you look at that word in the Greek, its own, what that word actually means, it's a pronoun and it means itself. Interesting. So really at, this, at the deepest core, when we say love does not seek its own, it's saying love does not seek itself. And because it doesn't seek itself, it doesn't need to seek people, possessions, reputation, status, anything that would attain to itself. So let's have a look at what the Bible says about ownership and possessions. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 14. Pop a finger in 1 Corinthians 13 before you turn there so that you can come back. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Now, this is a pretty intense little passage of Scripture. From verse 25, Jesus is talking about a familiar passage that we've heard here before. He says to me, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, his mother and his wife and his children, his brother and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. A little bit hard hitting. And then it flows on down in the climax of this little passage. He says, he says this, So then, none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all of his possessions. Whoa. Is that intense or is that intense? You know, he doesn't say, Therefore, none of you can be my disciples who does not give up some of his possessions. He says, Therefore, Therefore, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. So I thought before we get too deep into this this morning, we'd take a little bit of a survey. Now, I hope that you came here on a Sunday morning prepared to participate in this. I was at a seminar earlier in the week, and it was all going really well. Everyone was so engaged. And then the instructor said, cool, we're just going to have a little exercise to see how much you've learned. And the whole, the whole seminar just like shrinks back. Oh, my goodness, I've got to talk to the person next to me. So we're going to start by a little survey about our own possessions. So I'd like a show of hands here. Is there anyone in this room who owns a business? Any business owners? A few, a few down the front here. Cool. 
is there anyone in this room who owns a boat? Yeah, yeah, little yellow boat. Keith probably has a proper boat, I'm assuming. <laughs> oh, sorry, Kirk. <laughs> Look, a little yellow dinghy is a boat, all right? It qualifies. <laughs> is there anyone in this room who owns a house? Oh, a few more people. That's pretty good. Anyone in this room who owns a car? Yeah, yeah, more hands. Is there anyone in this room who owns a suit? Yep, a few classy people. I see that hand, Nick. Private, private joke. All right, is there anyone in this room who owns a jacket? A T-shirt? A pair of undies? Oh, Wait, is there anyone in this room who doesn't own a pair of undies? <laughs> All right, we'll come and have a conversation with the elders after the service. <laughs> and yet, when we go back and look at this passage, Jesus says, So then, none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all of his possessions. Wait, I thought everyone in this room has some sort of possession. You just admitted to me. So I guess now I can probably just disqualify all of you here from being disciples of Jesus and probably just go on my way. Or maybe there's more to this that Jesus is talking about than simply your possessions and even your ability to give away your possessions. Maybe there's more to being a disciple of Jesus than simply giving an external form of devotion but without giving an internal, surrendered heart to him. What do you think? Am I, am I with you? Or let's see. So these words, love does not seek its own. I've said it doesn't seek its own property. It doesn't seek its own position. It doesn't seek its own reputation. It doesn't seek its own status. It doesn't seek to be recognized, esteemed, and yet it's at its deepest core, love does not seek itself. You know, in the, in the scripture that we just read in 1 Corinthians, it says, if you give your body to be burned, if you give everything that you physically possess to the extent that you even give your own body to be burnt to death but do not have love, it profits you what? It profits you nothing. So if you are writing notes, you can jot that one down. Point number one, love does not seek itself. You know, growing up, I would read hard-hitting passages like that. And as a, probably as a younger, in terms of maturity in my faith, Christian, I remember being at university and I read I read that passage and I was like, man, I've got to give up all of my possessions. I've got to, I so want to be a disciple of Jesus. Now the intent was so genuine, but I came across this verse and I think I must I, I was so desperate to, to want to please him and live for him that I took it and I ran with it. And so I, what I felt at the time was God inviting me to give away all of my money. And so I was single, so I didn't, you know, it wasn't like I had children to, to provide for, but I was pretty set on giving away all my money. And so 
I, I, just, I did just that. I, I emptied out my bank account, literally emptied it out to the last nothing. And I thought, man, this is going well, you know, like I'm, I am so much closer to God having given away all of my possessions. And for a moment, I felt so pleased with myself. I was like, man, I am just smashing this Christian thing. Uh, I've just given away all my possessions. I don't know anyone else who has given away all of their money. Just me. I am flying, man. I am on top of the world. The next day comes along, and I was like, oh, (laughs) I've got no money. Uh, And I was so nervous, anxious. I was like, my goodness, I, I was so, all of my mind was consumed about me and my lack of money. <laughs> and, you know, God is so incredibly abundantly gracious. You know, in that week, when I literally emptied out my bank account, out of the complete blue, I received a letter from my um from my granddad, and it said this. It said, Grandma is emptying out her bank account. <laughs> Funny. And she gave, an inher- she gave a small inheritance to each of our, um, our cousins before they passed away because they wanted to see us enjoy what they had as opposed to receiving it when we die. And I just could not believe my eyes that even in the midst of such absolute immaturity and having completely misinterpreted a scripture that really wasn't about my possessions, God's goodness and grace to cover me was still there. And yet even in his covering of me, I still hadn't come into the life or the words behind the words. You know, it says it says this, he says, So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. You see, in the scripture, there's the words, giving up all your possession. But then there's the word that lies behind the words, which God is not concerned about your possessions. I would have to say that God is the richest person I could possibly ever know. Can you think about someone richer who can just speak the entire world into existence? He doesn't get more wealthy than that. He doesn't need our possessions. So what does this mean? Ultimately, God isn't looking for our possessions. He's looking for our hearts. He's not looking for us to give up all of our possessions. He's looking for a heart that's soft and surrendered to him so that he can fill us with the true possession, the eternal one, the very eternal life of God himself. You see, if you give your body to be burned but do not have love, it profits you nothing. But if you have a love in your heart, and if you receive a love from the Father, that is a substance that really is eternal. No one can take that from you. A bad day can't take that from you. A nagging wife can't take that from you. A frustrated child can't take that from you. An unreasonable boss can't take the love of God out of your heart. Because it's truly eternal. It's a substance that's enduring. It's everlasting. It never runs dry. So God is inviting us into not a form of religious, what would you say? Religious conformity, religious expectation. 
He's inviting us into a relationship where we know him to such a measure that we receive a love on the inside of us that really does change us and a security in us that sets us free from people, possessions, and things. You see, I gave away all my possessions, but I was bound by my possessions. When you give your heart to him, no one can take that away from you or from him. So I put here point number one, love does not seek its own. You know, in reflecting on what it was like for me as a, as a young believer, I was thinking, man, we can sometimes treat God like a wishing well. We give him a token amount. You know, God spoke, uh, Greg spoke last week about the difference between incorporating Jesus in and surrendering our life to him, giving him a portion of what we are, but not giving him us ourselves. And so it can be like a bit of a, a wishing well where you flick in a little bit, hoping, expecting that there might be some sort of blessing that comes back to you because of your good deed. You see, God, he doesn't need you to do something for him for, for you to be loved by him. But when you know that you're loved by him, then you will give to him. Not just your possessions, but your entire life. So point number one, love does not seek itself. Point number two, but love does seek. Love does seek. Love is not passive. It's not indifferent. It's offensive, strong, passionate, and decisive. It's the very substance that we receive within us that will empower us and enable us to live our lives for him. You see, faith, hope, and love are deeply, deeply motivating. But like we see in 1 Corinthians 13, love is the greatest of them all. Faith, hope, and love are the greatest motivators on planet Earth. What is faith? Faith is the ability to see as God sees. See, faith is not a blind belief. Faith is sight. So God was walking with Abraham, and, and they were communing together, and he asks him to go and sacrifice his own son. And Abraham, it says, having seen that God would even raise his son from the dead, willingly and without any compulsion or expectation, gave up his son. Not because he was so deeply committed to God in a religious form of devotion, but because he had truly seen that God would raise him from the dead if he needed to. So faith is sight and it empowers us to live for God. What about hope? Normally when you hear the word hope, it's, we've been discussing this in our discipleship group, it's almost like it's something, when you hope for something, it's, you're almost like crossing your fingers that something will happen. Actually, the Bible doesn't describe hope in that way at all. The Bible describes hope as an expectation that is so sure, steadfast, and immovable. It's the expectation of something good. It's not a blind belief like, like the, the perception of it is. 
it's, it has substance to it. You know, Tess and I are parents of a fantastic two-year-old boy. And at the moment, his favorite thing to do is to eat meals. But his even more favorite thing to do is at the end of his meals. And so our meal times go something like this. He's desperate for his food. He smashes his food. He leaves some stuff on his plate and in his cup. And it's almost like this, this tends to happen. He looks at me across the table. He holds out his cup with half the water left in. And then quickly throws his plate off the table before I can get to him to stop him causing even more mess. Now, Tess and I are working through what it means to raise a healthy and mature son. Is there any hope for him? <laughs> you see, our response in that moment is so telling of the hope that we have for our kids. What would it be like for me to say, oh, mate, you are, I have told you five times this week, if you hadn't changed by now, you're never going to change. You are just so immature. I Honestly, I just don't think you're ever going to grow up. I just, I can't live with this. I can't deal with this. Is that the hope that love holds? No. What does hope look like? Tess and I go into our bedroom at the end of the night and have a conversation about how things are going. That is a good idea. <laughs> Communication with your wife is always a good idea. <laughs> and we talk about, hey, his behavior right now is a bit disruptive, but to be honest, he's going to, Tess said to me, she said this, he's going to grow out of that in no time at all. He's going to grow out of that in no time at all. He's two now, but when he's three, four, five, six, there, I have absolutely no qualms, queries. I'm not worried one little bit if he's going to grow out of that. Why? Because he is. Because he's going to grow up. I don't know if there's anyone sitting in this room who still looks at their parents when they're in their 20s and throws a glass of water onto the floor. You just don't do that. You just don't. Why? Because hope sees beyond the situation. It sees beyond the behavior, beyond the disobedience, and it sees potential. And because we can see the potential in them, that has an impact and an influence on the way that we discipline. See, we discipline based on potential. We don't discipline based on behavior. We discipline based on the fact that he is absolutely going to grow out of that one day. So why, why do I need to get frustrated if this is just a blip on the opportunity for a relationship with my son? What if I ruin my relationship for being so hard on him because he was simply behaving where he was at? without seeing the hope of what he's called to be. And so what I'm saying is not that you don't discipline your kids, but the discipline comes from another posture. It comes from sight. It comes from seeing value. It comes from seeing the maturing process that is absolutely sure to happen. See, I'm not 
biting my nails, wondering whether he's ever going to change, wondering if he's ever going to grow up. No, he is. I'm disciplining him based on his potential and calling him up into a maturity that he was always predestined to live from. So hope is an expectation of what's sure. And love. Love lays down its life for one another. The literal word, which we've heard of before, means agape, which actually just means to prefer. To prefer someone more than yourself, to seek them, to give over yourself for their interest and not your own. To love God is to prefer him and to prefer one another. There's a man in the Bible and his name's Stephen. Has anyone heard of Stephen before? Now this was a a man full, it says, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And you know it says that faith works through love. So the ability to see clearly comes from the substance of love that you have inside of you. And this man called Stephen was a man of great faith and a man of great love. And so he preached a message that was so powerful and so convicting, so confronting, that it had the religious people of the day literally throwing stones at him to kill his life. And in the midst of this stoning, he cries out and he utters these words. He says, my God, do not hold their sin against them. Do not hold their sin against them. This man, Stephen, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, full of faith, full of love, says, God, do not hold their sin against them. What is that? What did he see that empowered him to utter those words? I wonder if this man, Stephen, could look in the face of those people who were stoning them and see potential. If he could see himself and what he had been through, that the only reason he was where he was was because of the divine mercy and grace upon him that had loved him and rescued him out of his own depths of selfishness and had rescued him to a place of love. And seeing that potential in them, he says, Father, don't hold their sin against them. Why? Because God didn't hold his sin against Stephen. That's love. It lays down its life. You know, have you heard the saying, love is blind? Have you heard that? Yeah. And in the world, love is blind. You're so caught up in the emotional attachment to someone that you don't see clearly and truly. And in God, love sees. But it doesn't overlook immaturity. It sees potential and is able to respond to it accordingly. So love is not blind. It sees. You know, Jesus has a confrontational moment with a woman that's caught, I think, in adultery. And the Pharisees, the religious people of the day, come to him and they say this. They say, if this man was a prophet, he would know 
he would see that this woman is a sinner. He would see her sin. But Jesus doesn't respond on that basis. He isn't concerned about their sin. He's concerned about the potential and the value of this woman. And so he responds to the Pharisees pretty harshly, to be honest. And he responds softly and gently to the woman. And he calls her. He says, go and sin no more. Let go of everything that was holding you back, living for yourself, and come and live for me. Go and sin no more. So point number three. So we've got point number one. Love doesn't seek itself. Point number two. But love does seek. And point number three. You'll seek what you love. You'll seek what you love, what you value. It says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 13, 45 said this. He says that the kingdom of God is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he sells everything he has to buy it. The kingdom of God is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon discovering this pearl, this one pearl of great price, one pearl of great value, he sells everything that he has to buy it. This is what the kingdom of God is like. What would cause this merchant to go from having possessions, having wealth, having money, to giving all of his possessions away? It's not a rhetorical question. What, what does the parable say? Something of a greater and higher value. So he sees something of such value that he's prepared to naturally and innately give away all of his possessions, everything he owns, in pursuit of this one pearl of great value. See, love doesn't seek its own. It says, this is probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. So God so loved the world. He so saw potential and value in the world. He saw potential in you. He saw who you are always called and chosen to be. So he gave his son. See, it says that love does not seek its own. Love does not seek itself. That God, because he is love, didn't even consider the closest of possessions to him as being dear to himself, but gave up his only begotten son. This is the heartbeat and the nature of God, a God that so sees potential and value that he gives. And that heartbeat and that posture isn't just to be in God, it's to be in us. You know, when we're reading through these scriptures, it doesn't say, you shall not seek your own. Thou shall not seek their own. It says that love doesn't. We're looking here not at the rules of religious expectation. We're looking here at the power, the divine nature of our Father. And that divine nature is to live in us and is to become us. I heard a quote recently, um, and, and the guy said this. He said, the greatest travesty on the earth 
as men and women living for themselves when they were made for God's image. The greatest travesty on the earth, men and women living for themselves when they were made for God's image. So love doesn't seek its own. It doesn't live for itself. It doesn't live for its own possessions. It doesn't live for its own earthly relationships. It lives to have the fullness of the image, the life, the nature of God formed within it. That is who we're called to be as the people of God. You know, Paul, he said this, he said, I count all things as rubbish for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. There's a value here. There's a value attached to knowing him that will motivate you to let go of everything that you have and everything that you are. I wonder if we're seeing that incredible value of knowing Christ. I wonder if knowing Christ is the greatest pursuit of our lives. Not because he has to be, because we need to prove ourselves, but because we've tasted of this love that I just described. A love that lays down its life, that doesn't seek its own, that gives up everything that it has for us. So much so that we've been so influenced and impacted by that self, the selflessness of that love, that we are truly transformed and become that love ourselves. That's the message and the power of the gospel the complete transformation of our lives from becoming lovers of self to becoming lovers of God. So point number four, love seeks first the kingdom and its righteousness. Love has a completely different set of priorities because of what it can see. Like I said, because of the surpassing value of of knowing Christ, love does not seek its own. Love, because it doesn't seek itself, then it doesn't seek its own earthly relationships. It doesn't seek its own positions. It doesn't seek its own reputation or appreciation. It doesn't even seek its own vengeance. It doesn't seek its own security. It doesn't seek its own life. You know, love doesn't seek its own relationships. Like I was reading before, it says, if you do not hate your mother, your father, your brother, your son, you cannot be my disciples. And you know, there's a little footnote at the bottom of my Bible that brings clarity to that verse. It says, in light of the greatness of love of God. That love has to motivate us to hear those kind of scriptures. Otherwise, we'll hear what it's not saying and not what it is saying. You know, Jesus says, be careful how you hear. Be careful how you hear. Because, like we heard last week, a a, a message that was so powerful and explosive, there's such potential to hear something that will put on uh, another expectation as opposed to empower us. To be, to be and become who he's calling us to be. Be careful how you hear. Love doesn't seek its own possessions. You know, for Tess and I, this becoming love has been a pursuit of our lives. And in every situation, we're, we're learning what it means to be perfected in love and for that love to become who we are. 
And so there was a situation that came up a couple of years ago. I think Tess must have been pregnant at the time, or um, or maybe we had just had Levi. And we had Tess had some friends from overseas who she was just um, in, in conversation with, and they had had a baby, or either had had or were just about to have a baby at the same time as us, who, I, can, I'm not sure, can you remember why it was, Tess? Can't remember why it was, but for some reason, this baby had been born um, almost, was it almost like a vegetable? Brain dead. Brain damaged. Severely brain damaged. So much so that the doctors had no idea how this baby would be for the rest of their lives. And so we heard about these friends of Tessa's from overseas who I had never met before. And they didn't contact us or anything like that. It was just through the, the general course of you know, keeping in touch with people. And they had shared about how their baby had, um, yeah, had been severely brain damaged. And from within us welled up such a, a love and a compassion. So Tess and I, we thought, well, we had just been given... Tessa's maternity pay, we said, why don't we just save that money and give that to them because they were in a whole lot of debt and needed support at that time. And now I remember looking back on this and I remembered back to the time of feeling like I needed to give away everything I had and everything I needed and I owned to be religiously devoted and being so thankful for a work that God had done in my heart that I didn't need to give to be accepted. I had the privilege of being able to give out of a heart of overflow and out of a heart of love because that love didn't seek its own. We looked at our own relationship and our own needs and actually saw that just because we were given something by the government didn't mean that that was ours to possess. Actually, everything that we have is his And when we give not just our possessions, but when we give our entire life, when we don't just seek possessions and we don't seek ourselves, we are then free to be able to give, not based or administer giving on the basis of earthly relationships, but on the basis of his love and a security in him that we've actually received everything from him so that we're able to give. And so giving then became such a joy. It completely transformed my perspective on what it was that we have and what it was that he was inviting us into. It was a complete revolution of us on the inside. And so like I said, this love that doesn't seek its own isn't a thou shall not. It's a life that we're to come into And it's a heartbeat that we're to possess, the very heartbeat of the Father, the divine nature of God himself that comes in and changes us on the inside. And it empowers us to let go of ourselves, let go of our own lives, and to live for him. I think that's enough for now. So Father, I pray that we would be able to receive that love on the inside that sets us free from ourselves. Father, a love that doesn't seek its own life, a love that doesn't seek its own possessions. Father, that seeks you. Father, I thank you that you're doing this powerful work within us. You're separating us from ourselves and you're filling us with a love and a knowledge of yourself that really does change us 
and makes us like you. So, Father, I pray that we would receive that love, that word of God that comes and does its work and it cuts and it penetrates and it makes us new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.